I can tell you that we've checked and we have a lot of ways to check. And I can guarantee to you, our technology was not used on Jamal Khashoggi or his relatives. Or the dissidents? Or like the relatives. Omar Abdulaziz and... I'm not going to get into specific and tell you that if we will figure out that somebody has misused the system, we will shut down the system immediately. We have the right to do it and we have the technology to do it. It begs the question, did you shut down the Saudis? I'm not going to talk about uh, customers and I'm not going to go into specific. We do what we need to do. We help create a safer world. That's an excerpt from a 2019 60 Minutes interview with Chavel Julio, then the CEO of the NSO Group, an Israeli cyber firm that's gotten quite a bit of unwanted publicity in recent years. The NSO Group, formed and staffed by ex-cyber wizards of the Israeli Defense Forces, markets a powerful cyberware tool called Pegasus that can penetrate the iPhones of anybody in the world and download all their data without leaving a trace. You don't even have to click on a malware link for Pegasus to suck up every tiny detail of your existence, your emails, your text messages, your contacts, and your calendar showing who you're planning to have dinner with tomorrow evening. The NSO Group says it markets Pegasus to foreign governments to help them track terrorists and drug traffickers. But as Ronald Diebert, who runs the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab, has discovered, Pegasus has been used by regimes around the world to target dissidents, journalists, and human rights activists, leading to, among other horrors, the 2018 assassination of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. As Diebert writes in a new article in Foreign Affairs entitled The Autocrat in Your Phone, Pegasus and other spyware has become the digital surveillance tools of choice for repressive regimes around the world, from MBS's Saudi Arabia to Viktor Orban's Hungary. We'll talk to Diebert about the continuing threat posed by Pegasus and other tools in the burgeoning spyware business on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Chief Counsel at States United. What leaps out to me about all this is we all remember back, um, what was it, 2014 or so, when Edward Snowden, the NSA contractor, made all his uh, uh, disclosures about uh, NSA documents showing the kinds of data that was being collected by the NSA with the help of the FBI. Our phone records were all being sort of collected without any knowing about it. The NSA had relationships with various telecommunications firms. And this produced a huge scandal. Of course, Snowden fled to Vladimir Putin's Russia. He just accepted Russian citizenship there. But most of the attention was on the threats to civil liberties, our privacy. From today's perspective, what we've learned about Pegasus and other spyware technologies, the Snowden stuff was small potatoes because 
What these firms are doing, NSO Group and related ones, is far more insidious, selling their spyware to all sorts of repressive regimes, specifically targeting dissidents, journals, human rights activists, without anybody having any idea of how they're doing it and what they're doing. It's a huge issue from the civil liberties perspective, from the human rights perspective, and you know, I believe not getting nearly as much attention. One reason we want to talk to Ronald Debert today. Yeah, it's scary enough when governments are developing the technology, but in some ways, what makes this also a kind of a dystopian technology or super technology is it's part of this sort of privatization of national security. And it's so it's so seductive. Everyone wants, you know, governments and potentially others will want to get a hold of this technology because it's so powerful. And and the question that it this raises is like, what do you do about it? At least when you're talking about governments, you know, there are ways to maybe put pressure on them. But how do you develop a legal and a regulatory framework around what the private sector is doing with this technology. I just think it causes all sorts of challenges. But not, uh, not just forward. the private sector. The private sector sells this right. to governments. It's well, governments exactly. that are using it. I understand that. And, you know, the United States has, has started this process by, you know, blacklisting the NSO group that makes Pegasus. Um, but the cat is sort of out of the bag. And I just don't know how you how you put it back in. You know, I was thinking it's like about 45 years ago, the U.S. Congress held a series of hearings in the church, in something that's known as the church committee that uncovered massive or it seemed at the time massive violations of privacy and efforts by federal government agencies to surveil dissidents and to basically intimidate civil society in America. It led to massive reforms, a massive amount of attention paid to it. And it seems like nothing like that is happening anymore, as if, you know, it's a sign of how much our society and our government has changed in the last 45 years, where the idea that there's this uh, sort of this super surveillance technology or what Snowden revealed could occur and it feels mostly like crickets. I mean, look, this is, you know, my view, the the sort of single most frightening uh, development on the civil liberties front in recent years, gotten some attention, not nearly enough. One of the problems, though, of course, is it's an international phenomenon. So while the United States government can take steps to blacklist the NSO group and restrict the FBI or DEA from using this sort of technology, although let's see the details on that because there have been reports that both those uh, law enforcement agencies have um, explored and had relationships about the possible use of spyware. How do you regulate what rogue governments around the world are going to do with it? You know, whether it's Rwanda or Hungary or the Saudis, I mean, the list is, is, is seemingly endless. And could this technology eventually spread? You could imagine corporations uh, getting hold of them and using them to spy on their competitors. Or to sell us the latest crap that we don't need. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. <laughs> Insert, uh, you know, God knows what app on our phone. Anyway, it's a really important subject and um, uh, we've got the perfect guest to talk about it. 
But before we do that, we have some unpleasant news to share with Skullduggery listeners. Um, We've had a a great ride over the past five years doing this podcast, breaking down the conduct of Washington's political class, tracking conspiracy theories, disinformation, uh, and everything else we've uh, tried to do on the podcast with uh, interviews with members of Congress, government officials, activists of all stripes. But um, we're going to um, go quiet after next week. We hope to still stay around in some way um, for you, but uh, there will not be the kinds of regular weekly skullduggery offerings that you may have come become used to, but it's not an absolute goodbye. No, no, not at all. We're not going to say goodbye. Okay. What are we uh, saying? We're we're not going (laughs) to say goodbye because we're going to continue channeling the mission, the energy, and the spirit of skullduggery into our journalism throughout the Yahoo News ecosystem, in our stories, our videos, and and even in other formats. So who knows? We might just be back in another form uh, in the near future, so stay tuned. And we'll have at least one more episode besides this one. At, at least uh, one. We might have a couple more, by the way. Yeah. Just uh, throwing that little curveball at you we, at the last minute. One that we can promote right now, because it is right in the Skullduggery wheelhouse, is we will have an episode uh, after the January 6th report drops next Wednesday. So we hope you'll join us for our farewell pod. And uh, thanks again to the audience and to all of our guests and to everyone who was uh, so engaged in the conversation and who held us accountable for the mistakes we made. And um, we will stay in touch. And on that, what we expect to be our last uh, episode, um, we will read through as much as we can, the uh, tens of thousands of pages of the January 6th committee report and we are told related transcripts of all the interviews, something I've been calling for on Skullduggery for months now, so you won't have to. That is our promise for this uh, end of year phase. And I, I promise to uh, bank up all of my uh, fights and disputes with Mike for that uh, for that final episode, too. <laughs> yeah, we ought, we ought to make a special reel. Uh, yes. The, yeah. the, the, uh, the Bassetti Isakoff smackdowns. <laughs> right. But I don't think I want a Twitter vote on that because I think we've already seen how the uh, results come in. Um, anyway, uh, we've got a really serious uh, subject and a really great guest to talk about it. So let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us Ron Debert. He is a professor of political science at the University of Toronto and the director of Citizen Lab, the cyber research firm that has done groundbreaking work on this issue. And he's got a new article in Foreign Affairs called The Autocrat in Your Phone. Ron, welcome to Skullduggery. Pleasure to be here, Mike, with you both, with you all, actually. Yes, yes. Skullduggery. (laughs) So there's so much to talk about on this, and it raises so many important national security and civil liberties issues. Let's just start out with you telling us, what is spyware? What is Pegasus? Why Mm. did you focus on them to begin with? 
Spyware is a certain type of surveillance technology, and it's a um, a form of malware, basically. Uh, this is a commercial version of hacking. So um, basically, over years, governments have developed a wide variety of technical means to undertake surveillance. And as societies have become more dependent on digital technologies and having a phone in your pocket at all times, of course, the the interest is focused on getting inside that device. And once you're inside a person's device, you get a, a very good picture of a person's complete pattern of life, all of their emails, all of their activities, all of their movements. So it represents a real quantum leap forward in surveillance capabilities. And there are a wide variety of firms that have developed uh, capabilities to exploit vulnerabilities in the operating systems or the applications that are contained in our devices. I want to get into who has been using Pegasus and this kind of spyware, but there, there was something that leapt out at me in your article that I wanted to just drill down on. I mean, like many journalists, I use Signal and WhatsApp encrypted messaging systems to communicate with sources on anything that might be particularly sensitive. And I assume that it's encrypted and that nobody else can read it. But as you explain in the article, when somebody's got this kind of spyware, actually, they can penetrate through these mm -hmm. encrypted apps. Explain that. That, that, that's correct. In fact, it's one of the principal motivating factors for the spyware industry is to help government operators, law enforcement, intelligence agencies, and others get around the problem of the increasing volume of end-to-end -end encrypted applications. So even as recently as five, seven years ago, a lot of the traffic on the internet was not encrypted end-to-end. -end. And then you had First of all, encryption as a standard in terms of internet traffic. And then you had applications like Signal, WhatsApp, iMessage that provided end-to-end -end encryption. Um, but once you're inside somebody's device, you're effectively seeing everything that the owner of that device sees. In other words, you're seeing messages before they are encrypted or after they've been decrypted. So it's a very elegant way to resolve the problem that they often refer to as the going dark problem. There's a lot of cryptography that's used as a standard means of protecting communications. How do we get around that? Well, you get around it by getting inside the device. And Ron, just one other kind of technical point, because some of the more sophisticated spyware like Pegasus has something called, I think it's no-click spyware, right. right? Which is to say- no zero click uh which is to say you don't have to actually click on a you know some link that yeah. would create the malware it they're just they just get in there right that's right this is a evolution of the targeting actually so if you go back 10 years looking at some of the primitive china based or russian based or iranian based called advanced persistent threats the type of targeted espionage that went went on back then usually it involved target being tricked into clicking on a link or opening an attachment that contained a piece of malware. And so a lot of the effort went into the social engineering. And actually, that type of targeting was an Achilles heel. So if you look at earlier Citizen Lab reports, 
we were confirming or verifying targeting around victims based on messages they received, which would contain these shortened links that were disguised to try to trick a recipient into clicking on them. The technology is advanced now for some of the vendors, NSO group being among them, to uh, essentially commandeer a phone without any user interaction whatsoever and without really any visible means to an average visible indication that some kind of tampering has gone on. So one minute your phone is sitting next to you on your bedside table and it's perfectly clean. And in the next minute it's compromised and it's sending data to a operator somewhere on another part of the world. So extremely powerful, very invasive, almost godlike technology in a market that's almost entirely unregulated, which naturally leads to the abuses that we're seeing and documenting worldwide. Tell us about those abuses. Who has to be worried about spyware? How is it being used today? Well, basically, you know, we have this term we use mercenary spyware vendors. And the reason is because they're very much like uh, mercenary companies in, in the military sphere in that they sell their, their services and their products to government clients largely without regard to ethics or politics. And some of the companies, uh, you know, do a song and dance about the ethics and, and the due diligence that they do. But it's clear from the volume of abuse cases we and others have been able to document that they really don't put much effort into it. And so you have really a, a worldwide problem is the way I'd describe it. Over dozens of reports we published over the last 10 years, just about every government that you can imagine is or is potentially a client of one or another of these spyware vendors. You know, we live in a time when there's a lot of democratic backsliding and authoritarianism is spreading. There's a lot of corruption, uh, a lot of autocrats around the world. Who do they see as a principal threat to their regime? It's not the classic way in which this technology is marketed, meaning they're using it to strictly investigate serious matters of crime and terrorism. They're instead going after people like you, frankly, journalists, international investigators, anti-corruption investigators, human rights defenders, uh, lawyers. We're seeing a lot of attorney-client privilege being broken because frivolous way in which uh, clients of this type of technology are using it to go after those who they may be in legal disputes with. So it's really a kind of pandemic of abuse that we're seeing now. I believe it's one of the most serious uh, crises facing global civil society. And as I say in the foreign affairs piece, we're seeing the, the pillars of liberal democracy being fundamentally eroded as this type of capability spreads. So one of the leading, perhaps the foremost firm in this arena is the NSO Group, the Israeli firm that was formed by a bunch of former hackers for the Israeli Defense Forces. And they've marketed Pegasus, which is their spyware, to multiple regimes around the world. You helped expose the role of the NSO Group, particularly in the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist. Walk us through how you did that, how you made those links. And as you probably know, the NSO group has said, well, we had no role in the targeting of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. I think you presented some pretty persuasive evidence that that's not the case. Just yeah. 
tell us that story. Sure. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating story, actually. And 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 just to uh, preface it, uh, the Citizen Lab produced the first public evidence-based report on NSO Group back in 2016, when a, de- a human rights defender living in the United Arab Emirates named Aman Mansour shared with us a couple of messages that he received that contain NSO-laden links. And we actually infected our device in a laboratory setting with Pegasus, captured a copy of the spyware, determined that it took advantage of flaws that even Apple didn't realize existed on its operating system and did a responsible disclosure to Apple. That was the first time anyone had encountered an SO group. And then a couple of years later, we had been monitoring the network infrastructure of NSO Group in the summer of 2018. And by that, I mean, even though a company like NSO Group goes to great lengths to obfuscate how traffic moves through its system from an infected device to one of its government clients, it still leaves digital breadcrumbs that researchers like us can sometimes use to track who their government clients are, where infected devices are coming from. And in 2018, uh, we noticed that there was a device that was hacked with Pegasus that was checking into NSO's infrastructure from Quebec, uh, from a small town called Sherbrooke. And we had no idea who it was. So we literally just went on a, you know, a hunt. Uh, we knew that this was the Saudi uh, client of NSO group that was hacking somebody. And we developed a short list of likely targets in Canada. And we literally went door to door uh, interviewing people until we came across a person named Omar Abdulaziz. Mike, I know you interviewed him for your other show. We determined that his device was the one that was hacked with Pegasus. He's a critic of the Saudi regime. We published our report about Omar's hacking on October 1st, 2018. The very next morning, I got a text from Omar saying, oh my God, Jamal has gone missing. And I had no idea who he was referring to. It was, of course, Jamal Hashoji. And uh, he was executed the very next day after our report came out. What I didn't realize was that Omar and Jamal had for many months been communicating over WhatsApp, over what they thought was a secure messaging platform, going back to our earlier conversation. Of course, the whole time the Saudis were eavesdropping on this communication because they were able to see that side of the communication. In other words, through the visibility they had into Omar Abdulaziz's device. Afterwards, uh, there were suspicions about Omar's device, about the close relatives and family members of Jamal Khashoggi and others. Of course, we don't know what happened to Jamal's devices because his fiance turned them over to Turkish authorities. But subsequently, both Amnesty International and the Citizen Lab determined that his wife and his fiance, uh, both of their devices were hacked with Pegasus. We now actually have much better um, visibility into the forensics of an iPhone than we did back in 2018, which allows us to examine crash logs and actually go back in time with a precision to the point where we can see down to the second when a device was hacked with with Pegasus. So even though we don't know what happened to Jamal Khashoggi's devices, we know that everyone around him had their devices compromised by Saudi operatives using Pegasus. 
So it's very disingenuous for NSO Group to claim that they had nothing to do, their technology had nothing to do with the gruesome execution of Jamal Khashoggi, when we know that everyone around him with whom he was communicating, and there are several others, in fact, did have their devices hacked with Pegasus. Give us a sense of how pervasive this mercenary spyware problem is. You, you in, in your story in, in foreign affairs, you start with an example involving the exiled opposition leader um, in Rwanda. Uh, you have a fascinating story in that same piece about how Citizen Lab, I think, it discovered large swaths of the Catalan civil society and Catalan government was being uh, spied on through uh, through Pegasus, and then it's not just Pegasus, right? You know, there there it's a it's a whole industry. So how big a problem is this? How how pervasive is it? It's a huge problem, in part because uh, the market is largely unregulated. It operates in a uh, largely under the shadows. So most of the government clients of these type of companies are security agencies, usually intelligence or law enforcement. Of course, in many, many governments around the world, accountability is very weak. In a lot of the countries that we're talking about, oversight is largely non-existent or very fragile or really is flawed in some way. A lot of the governments maybe are are still in a kind of um, Cold War architecture. So we're we're seeing one after another of these national level scandals. El Salvador, Spain, Greece, Hungary, Poland, Thailand, Mexico. Uh, These are all country cases from our own research at the Citizen Lab, usually involving dozens of victims. So... You know, the market is growing because there's a huge appetite for this type of technology for what is obvious, obvious reasons. You can put yourself in the place of somebody who has access to this type of godlike technology where you can get inside a person's daily movements. You can gather incriminating photos that maybe you could use for blackmail. Uh, You could find out and anticipate what political opposition groups are planning and neutralize whatever it is they're planning before they do it. So I am, I imagine it's highly addictive. And without any rules to the contrary, you know, the, the market is just spreading. It's also extremely lucrative. So the firms that we're talking about here are valued sometimes in excess of a billion dollars. They're usually underwritten by private equity firms. And many of these uh, companies employ the same corporate obfuscation techniques as the autocrats that they serve. In other words, they operate um, shell companies and front companies to to kind of disguise uh, the contracts, very typical in terms of the sales of NSO Group, for example, uh, where they'll set up a, a front company in a local jurisdiction to handle the contracting, what appears to me to be a way to evade accountability. Just a quick follow up on that, because I mean, the the Biden administration has taken some steps. They blacklisted the uh, NSO group, but is there what kind of a push is there? Is there a push toward you know sort of a, a, a global sort of global rules rules of the road or a kind of legal or regulatory framework to mitigate uh, some some of these threats? Is anything really being done on that front? Yeah, there there are some things that are being done right now. I I think, first of all, we have to acknowledge that this is going to be a very difficult problem to fix. 
in part because the lack of transparency around the marketplace, but also in part because governments are conflicted. Virtually every government has a signals intelligence agency or security agencies that benefit from this marketplace. They contract with firms. The United States government contracts with firms like this. Um, my own government in Canada does the same. And they uh, would prefer uh, that this issue be kept you know, under wraps so that they can enjoy the fruits of, of this type of capability. However, the publicity around the abuses uh, has been growing uh, for the last five to seven years at, at least. And we've seen inquiries in, in Europe. Uh, European Parliament has something called the PEGA Committee, where they've been holding hearings and trying to bring some accountability and uncover some facts about what's going on. They don't have much power to do anything um, because that's the European Parliament. Frankly, the, the most promising developments have come from the United States. So you mentioned the Commerce Department ruling. NSO Group, another firm called Kandiru, and several other hack-for-hire firms were put on what's known as the designated entity list, uh, which means that those businesses are restricted from doing commercial transactions with, with U.S. entities, which uh, may not seem like much, but it really sent a very strong signal to the industry as a whole uh, that accountability was coming and the value of NSO group dropped after that designated entity list ruling. We've seen the uh, House Intelligence Committee put forward uh, in bipartisan fashion, which is remarkable these days, within the Intelligence Authorization Act of 2023, new measures to hold spyware firms accountable. And uh, same with the National Defense Authorization Act for 2023. And there's talk of an executive order coming from the Biden administration around this. There's guidance coming out of the Department of Justice and the FBI. Um, so a lot of positive signals are coming from the United States. Of course, what you need here is governments to harmonize around this issue. It's going to be very difficult to move a lot of other governments. And of course, Israel is a special country in this, in this story. A lot of the leading firms are based in Israel. And historically speaking, the Israeli government, various governments over the years, have encouraged this type of innovation. In other words, uh, taking the expertise of Israel's very formidable signals intelligence and intelligence capabilities and commercializing them, encouraging veterans of those agencies to develop startups. Until that culture changes until, and until there's um, stronger regulations coming out of Israel, I think we'll still see these sorts of problems. Wasn't there just a uh, New York Times story about another Israeli firm that the DEA was um, uh, doing business with yes. or purchasing spyware from? That's right. Yeah. Paragon. Just to follow up on that, you know, uh, you could you could certainly imagine an agency like the DEA or the CIA making a positive case for this sort of technology or spyware that they uh, they need it to catch terrorists or drug dealers or the like. How are the agencies kind of drawing the line between the positive uses and the possibly abusive uses of this technology? Yeah, that, that's a really good question, Victoria, and it, it's it's an important one because I think there are some people who are 
you know, people in my community who advocate for a ban on this type of technology or a moratorium, which I think I can understand the motivation behind that call, but I think it's practically not realistic because agencies of the sort that you're describing, they're going to be looking for whatever technique or means or methods they can use to do their job. And the reality of the world we live in, there are a lot of bad people out there. There are a lot of crimes being committed, and we want to have law enforcement do their job efficiently and professionally, and they need to be well-equipped and well-trained. So to me, it's less a matter of whether this technology exists or not, but what is the framework around it? Is there proper oversight for how those agencies use it? Do judges who give warrants understand the quantum leap forward in capabilities that this type of surveillance technology represents. Let me give you an example. If you think about a traditional wiretap, think how different this is from a traditional wiretap or a GPS tracker. So you go to a judge, you say, I want to follow somebody around. Okay, you have a warrant. You can put a GPS tracker on the vehicle, follow them around. Or you get a wiretap warrant, you listen in on a landline, you hope that your suspects are communicating something when they're when they happen to be on that call. With this type of technology, you're getting a something like a wiretap on steroids, frankly. You're able to read every email, eavesdrop on every phone call, follow everyone around, go back in time, look historically at everything that has happened on this person's device for as long as that device has been active. You can turn on the camera, turn on the microphone. In other words, if any of us right now had a device compromised, the operator listening in on that device would be able to eavesdrop on this entire conversation. So it is, a, is as I say, a quantum leap forward in surveillance cap capabilities. It's not clear to me that we have in place the proper oversight mechanisms to prevent abuse of power around the use of this type of technology. So if we are going to use it, we need to invest in the type of checks and balances that are appropriate to this new type of capability. And let me just follow up on that, which is in addition to oversight, there's possibly accountability to the organizations or to the companies that have deployed the this, this spyware. And there's 100%. been a lawsuit that's been brought against uh, one of them in the United States just recently, you know, kind of seeking to hold them to to task. The NSO group, right? I mean, yeah. So been sued. Tell us about yeah. that case. And does it really have much of a chance? Well, uh, NSO group is up to its eyeballs in lawsuits, frankly. Frankly, there's not just one. There are many. WhatsApp, uh, Meta, the parent company of WhatsApp is suing NSO Group in California courts. Apple is suing NSO Group. There are victims in the UK who are suing NSO Group, as well as the countries that purchase the technology. And uh, the lawsuit that you just mentioned it involves uh, a number of journalists working for a news organization called El Faro, in El Salvador that we determined their devices were hacked with Pegasus. They're suing NSO group in US federal court. Will those succeed? I don't know, we'll see. I mean, that's a good way to bring about accountability. Litigation takes a long time. I don't need to tell any of you that. It's a long, slow process, but it's the right way to go about it. NSO group is hiding, trying to hide be behind sovereign immunity principles, saying that they should be treated the same way that foreign governments are, um, which so far the courts have thrown out. 
Um, so, you know, I believe that there will be some accountability coming from some of this litigation. So let me just take a step back here. I mean, all this sounds absolutely frightening from the perspective of privacy, but there's sort of softer, but just as insidious versions of this. And, you know, what comes to mind most prominently is TikTok, where, you know, millions of American kids are using TikTok most likely completely unaware that the uh, Chinese owners of TikTok can suck up all their data and put it in some giant, giant Chinese database, which would give the Chinese access to the same kind of information on our phones that Pegasus and the NSO group is collecting. How do yeah. you distinguish between TikTok and Pegasus? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, we live in an environment where surveillance is the uh, principal characteristic of the economy today. I mean, we live in an economy that's defined, I think, quite accurately as surveillance capitalism. So all of this very application we're using is not only functionally useful for us, but it's designed to extract as much data as as possible in order to monetize that for advertising. The key difference, of course, or two differences, I would say, is when you download an application, uh, typically you're doing it through some, you know, voluntary measure. You're you're consenting to the process. You may not understand all of the terms of service, but at least you're downloading and installing it to use it conscientiously. Whereas obviously the spyware that we're talking about is planted on somebody's device without their consent or knowledge. Secondly, is the question of the relationship between the applications and the government. I think we have to be concerned as a whole with how data that's collected by consumer-facing applications ends up in the hands of government agencies. That's obviously a major issue for privacy and civil liberties. And the applications coming from China have special risks associated with them because all Chinese companies have to comply with Chinese cybersecurity laws. So I, I think it's, it's very correct that we are mindful of those risks. And, you know, at the Citizen Lab, we've done extensive research on China social media applications, reverse engineering them. We showed WeChat, for example, was undertaking surveillance of international users of the application. The difference with this type of technology, though, is that it's directly marketed to uh, government security agencies as a surveillance tool, it takes advantage of flaws in operating systems that are not disclosed to the vendors. In other words, they thrive and profit on a kind of collective insecurity. So the engineers at, at NSO Group and companies like them spend most of their day scouring applications and operating systems to look for a flaw that they can take advantage of. So the entire industry is is based on something that would be illegal, hacking somebody's device without their knowledge, were it not for the fact that their clients are intelligence agencies operating in, in the shadowy realm. Different level of risk as well, right? I mean, you're you're tracking people and the government clients that are tracking them in in a lot of the cases that we're talking about are pretty nasty regimes. Uh, that will use this type of knowledge for things like targeted assassinations. 
One last question. Uh, you mentioned that there might be an executive order coming from the president shortly. I believe you've said you've been consulted by the White House on this. What would that executive order look like and how effective can it be? Well, I think it would be likely something along the lines of what we see in the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, which is framing this problem as foreign commercial spyware that represents a national security risk to the United States and compelling federal agencies to take certain steps when it comes to contracting or procuring with these type of firms that we've been talking about. In other words, making sure that they're not selling to adversaries of the United States or maybe even selling to regimes that use them to violate human rights or engage in digital transnational repression. That's not perfect. Uh, it's not the you know full scope solution I'd like to see, but I think it's a good step in the right direction. And it's the signal to governments around the world who are allied to the United States that they need to step in line as well. So it's a, I see it as a positive step. Although I should point out that the uh, some of the biggest abusers are not adversaries of the United States. They're the allies of the United right. States. But um, in any case, um, Ron, I want to thank you for uh, shining a light on what is clearly a sort of major civil liberties question for issue for everybody around the world. The foreign affairs article Ron has just published is called The Autocrat in Your Phone. I recommend every skullduggery listener to read it. And Ron, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. Appreciate Thanks so it. much, Ron. Thank you.